Down the street from uh, Buckingham Palace in London is St. James Palace. And currently, hanging on the wall in St. James Palace is a well-known painting that was purchased by Queen Victoria herself many years ago. And this painting is called The Roll Call. The Roll Call was painted in 1874 by a woman named Elizabeth Thomas, also known as Lady Butler, after she got married. So she took this painting and painted it and we see that although it was a woman during a time where the arts and where painting was mostly a, a hobby done by men, we saw that somehow this historic painting made it into the spotlight. The art world in England during this time was controlled by a small group called the Royal Academy, and it was made up of all men. And what they would do is they would receive hundreds and thousands of artwork, of paintings, and they would judge, and they would choose, and they would pick. And so of all the submissions, only a few would get in. Somehow, the roll call made it in. It was voted in to be showcased. And so it hung there in Burlington House in Piccadilly. And the beauty of this painting is that not only was it voted in by this elite group of artists, but it hung in a particular location where it was deemed more prestigious than the others. In, in Burlington House, they said there is a room called the lecture room, and they nickname it the black hole. They say if your painting is hanging there, it might as well be in a black hole because no one will look at it. But there's another room. In this place, there's a there's a gallery, Gallery 2. If your painting is hung in Gallery 2, it's going to catch a lot of eyes. It's going to have a lot of admirers. People are going to go, whoa, this must be the best of the best. So it mattered what room your painting was hanging in. What's even more, it mattered where in the room it was hanging in. This painting, the roll call, hung at eye level. And they call this on the line. Opposed to being skied high up where people could miss it, it was hung right at eye level in the main gallery, Gallery 2. And it would be hung there with pride for many people to admire and to look at. As we continue in our series of portraits of grace, we see a portrait that tells a beautiful story of God's redeeming love these two women today. You know, often biblical portraits are mostly dominated by men, by male figures. We know Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We know the story of David and Goliath. But today, hanging on the line in gallery two, in our view, for us to look at and learn, for us to be changed by, is the story, is a portrait of Ruth and Naomi. And as it hangs there, I want us to take a look at it. And although, again, I wish we can spend many weeks just admiring the nuances and the intricacies and the mysteries and the literary features of this work, I want to spend the next few minutes admiring the, the overarching narrative this portrait tells. So come along, let me show you. No, I'm just kidding. 
So we want to focus on the overarching narrative. And the overarching narrative is redemption, is redeeming redemption. So let me set it up. The first thing that should be said about the book of Ruth is that we don't really see any outright supernatural intervention by God. He doesn't come down in theophany or send an angel in vision. He doesn't speak through prophets or animals. There, there isn't this, this supernatural like, oh, there is God, there he is, this is the message, boom. It's, it's, it's a lot more subtle in the book of Ruth, in this story. Rather, we see God working in very inconspicuous ways. We see his sovereignty in subtle ways. We see his redeeming grace through natural, everyday means, and even in between long gaps of time. Through times of suffering, through times of hopelessness, we see that in this portrait today, God leads Naomi and Ruth to redemption through acts of kindness and love by ordinary people. In the book of Ruth, the author really wants us to see the world from a woman's point of view. The book of Ruth shows us a woman's world. And as we enter and see their stories, as we gaze upon this portrait, men and women alike, we can see that we resound with the same brokenness in our lives as we live in the sin-fallen world. And we can hopefully also see that we resound with the same hope of redemption we have in God, in his redeeming love. I want you to take a moment to relate to this for a second, right? Often when we hear preaching and we hear Bible stories, we're so taken back and encouraged and mesmerized by, by, by supernatural acts of theophany, of God appearing in fire or whispering in wind or speaking through a prophet. We think about scenes with Moses and God, but here, not only in the portrait of Ruth, but perhaps even as you look at your own lives, God's sovereignty is subtle. His redeeming grace works in the natural everyday means of your life. And even between the long gaps of time. When we look at the book of Ruth, four chapters, even if we were to read the whole thing, we can fly through it and we think because it's so condensed and it's just on a flat timeline that not much is going on, but if we take a closer look and think about the key, the theme, the song of redemption, we see that this portrait starts to come alive as grace lifts it, lifts it from the canvas. And so I want you guys to think about this. How often is that true in your lives? That in those long gaps of time where you feel that God might be silent, that he is probably still working on your behalf. In those normal, everyday, mundane moments as you clock in and clock out, that actually you are under the supervision of God's sovereignty. We'll see how this plays out in the story of Ruth. If I can challenge you to think about perhaps how that works out in your life. Again, if we look back, we see that in retrospect, most of our, our more, more profound moments, most of those, those big turning points in our lives happened in, in just subtle ways. It happened with acts of kindness and love. Those moments where our, our brokenness was redeemed, 
probably most often happen just through people being faithful. So I want to ask us to think about that as we go into it. And we're going to just quickly look at three things. First, we're going to look at the brokenness that gives this story character. Then second, we're going to look at redemption that makes the story beautiful. And third, we'll see how we relate to it, how it points to Christ and, and, and what it means for you and I this morning as we listen to God's word. So first, the brokenness. Second, redemption. And third, how does it point to Christ and how does it point to you and I? Brokenness. As we read in the book of Ruth, I don't want us to take for granted that these are just people in a tough time. It spells out pretty clearly for us what this, these women were going through. There was a famine. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that there was a famine. So Elimelech's family with his wife Naomi, they, they went to a foreign land because they were hungry. And in this foreign land, their two sons married two women, Ruth and uh, Orpha. But we're told that over time that Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. Not only that, 10 years later, Naomi's two sons, the husband of these two women, also die. Now we're left with a picture of Naomi, Orpha, Ruth, three women who are alive, and three men who have died away. We see that Naomi is in a foreign land, that she is in some ways a, a refugee or, or an immigrant, we see that in this culture, as men were providing and protecting women, that they've lost all their security, all their protection, all their hope, that Naomi was stuck in a foreign land with, with two young daughters-in-law who couldn't bear children, which was also a big shame in this context. That means the name would not perpetuate. We see these three women wondering what is going on, what's going to happen to us. Naomi, the mother-in-law, takes charge. She says, you know what? My daughters, I'm going to return back home to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back to Judah, and you guys stay here. Out of love, Naomi says, you guys don't need to follow me anymore. I'm too old. She says, even if I were to have a husband tonight and bear sons, will you wait for them to be old enough to marry them? She says, go. She says to go back to your families, go back to your mother's home, go back to your old way of life and follow your old gods. You don't have to follow me anymore. Naomi is hopeless. She sees that her future is so dark, she doesn't want to impart that to anyone. She says, this is the end for me, guys. Go live your lives. Go find new husbands. You're so young. I'm going back home. I'm going back home hopeless. And so after... Tears and agony, we see that one daughter, Orpha, does go. But we see Ruth stays and clings onto her, and she says, I'm not going to leave you. So Naomi, after realizing that, that Ruth is not going to leave her, and that she's not, she can't be pushed away, they both now sojourn back to Judah. Again, don't take for granted, these are two women traveling by themselves to another land. Think about how nervous and how dangerous, how, how anxiety-filled that these women are. They feel lost. Their, their husbands are not there to protect them. Who knows what will become of them as they travel? Who knows what they're going to do when they go back? They don't have any, anything to go back to. In fact, when they get back there, they're basically beggars. 
They have no one to feed them. And so Ruth takes it upon herself. She's like, I'm going to go into the fields and I'm going to glean and bring back some grain for us, Naomi. And make no mistake, even though this is a man's world, Ruth, through love for her mother-in-law, becomes so brave to do what's necessary. But when they go back home, they realize that there is a, a man that was related to Elimelech, Naomi's husband. And so you can imagine Ruth says, you know, at least I'll go reap in his field. At least maybe if I go there, he'll notice me. And so there is a glimmer of hope, and she goes there, and she starts to glean grain. Now Boaz sees her, and this is what Boaz says. This gives us a picture of of what, what it looked like for women to even go work out in the fields by themselves. He says, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Naomi says this to Ruth in chapter 2. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, least in another field you be assaulted. This was a harsh and broken reality for these women. They're trying to survive. They're trying to eat. They're finding themselves in a field where they could get assaulted at any moment. And that's even a rough way, a euphemism even, to say that anything could happen to these women in the field. There is deep brokenness. Now, you know, most of the time when we preach and we look at men, men we just were like, oh yeah, David, we can relate to that guy. Oh yeah, Jacob, yeah, I can relate to that guy. And I think often some of our sisters, they got to do a little more gymnastics to get there. So today, brothers, I want to encourage you guys that even though the, the, the portrait we're looking at is a woman, that, that you, you and I, men, we probably relate to, to this brokenness more than we're willing to admit. That you and I often feel so alone and like outcasts. And even though we puff up our chest and we we're as confident as can be, if we're honest, we know that all of that puffing up is actually to cover up our fear. And as we live almost feeling like beggars, just trying to scrap and live and get ahead, just try, trying to, to, to gain for ourselves some protection and security, we can relate to Ruth here. We can relate to these women and their brokenness. So brothers, don't think you're above this, outside of this, unrelated to this. If we were completely honest, we would admit it doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. All of us are so afraid. All of us are looking to be redeemed. So second point. In this brokenness, we see all this character being built. And you can almost see on this canvas that that pain is starting to drip on and and make texture. and, And right now it looks rough. It looks scary. It looks dark and dim. But as we look through now the lens of redeeming love and redemption, we'll see that it starts to light up. Now the theme of redeeming is all throughout this book. It's not just in the male figure. If we think about Ruth, look at this. In Ruth 2, 10 through 12, this is what it says. Um, But Boaz answered to Ruth, 
All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to, to a people that you did not know before. He says in Ruth 1, or Ruth says this, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. This is what Ruth is saying to Naomi when she said, go back. Ruth says this to her, her mother-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. How beautiful, how brave is this? Ruth, a woman in this context who, who, who's looked upon with no power, who's looked upon completely helpless. Her reputation goes before her, and even Boaz says, I know all that you have done. I know how you loved and you took care of your mother-in-law. And even as we see Ruth speaking to Naomi, we see the grit, we see the love and the resolve, the willingness to stay by her side in her brokenness. Where you go, I will go. Where you sleep, I will sleep. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. She's saying, Naomi, I know you lost everything. You lost your husband. You lost your two sons. Your two daughter-in-laws couldn't bear you a son. You have nothing. You think you're as good as dead. You're going to go home and just return and just, just die quietly. But I'm going to stick with you. You're not going to die alone. I'm not going to allow this to be the end of your story. I'm going to stick with you, and even if things don't turn up, you will not die alone. I will die with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. And we see this profound love shown through a seemingly broken and frail woman, but in actuality, driven by love, sticking by another broken person. This is beautiful. We see such loyalty in someone who's willing to stick with another broken person. That's pretty ordinary though, isn't it? You and I can do that. It doesn't take a vision, or it doesn't take a, a spiritual supernatural event for us to love someone like this. You and I can draw to brokenness in this way. And say, you don't have to be alone. You think your story is over, you think it's the end, and you're gonna die quietly without burdening anyone, but I'm gonna stay with you. Women, what more can you ask for from your daughters-in-law? How about, how about when your son brings a, 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 a lady home, you do a Bible study with her, and you say, hey, come on down, sit down. Let's do a Bible study on Ruth. Let me tell you what I'm looking for. I'm looking for where you go, I will go. Now follow after me, young lady. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God, and where you die, I will die. Do you accept? You might want to add that vow during their marriage, right? <laughs> Some mothers are like, yeah, I do. Well, we see such a beautiful picture from Ruth, a daughter-in-law. A daughter-in-law, not even her direct daughter, cling on to her. So we see this, this redemptive type of love being played out between Ruth and Naomi. And in the obvious one, we see it in Boaz as a redeemer, as we look at Boaz, this is what we see. Ruth 2.20, Naomi, her mother-in-law, says this to Ruth. The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Another way to translate that, one of our kinsmen. 
Ruth 3, 8 through 9. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and before, and behold, the woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer, a kinsman. Now that might sound strange, but basically in Ruth 3, what is happening is Ruth, in boldness again in a man's world, is saying, Will you marry me, Boaz? Will you redeem me? Now let me give you a little background, a little, little relevant contextual information. This is something that we can look at and refer to called a, a leveret marriage. And this is a practice where the brother of the deceased husband would, would marry that widow. And this was a way to ensure that she was protected, that she, she had security, that she was in a relationship with dignity, that she wasn't just going to be tossed back out into the town as a widow all broken, but that someone, a kinsman in the family, would bring her in and take her in as his own wife for the sake of his dead brother. He would do this so that the offspring of his brother's line would carry on, his seed would carry on, that him as a man would be redeemed and he would have a people to follow him. He would do this so that not only would his wife be taken in as a widow and now become a bride once more, but that his dead brother wouldn't have to lose the land that he owned, that it didn't go back out in the market, but he redeemed his land as well. And so it seems strange for us, it seems a little bit archaic, but in this cultural context we see that this is done, and this is done in a positive light, to love and to protect this widow, to love and to protect the land. And we see Boaz being proposed to by Ruth, saying, will you redeem me? Will you take me as your own? You are a kinsman, you are related to my family that I married into, will you spread your wings and will you be my redeemer? And so then the story goes that Boaz says, I'll do this, and he does it the right way. He calls all the elders at the gate to have a meeting. And a couple details taken out, he ends up redeeming her. The elders approve and says, take her for your wife and redeem her. And this is what the elders say to him. He says, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. What they are saying is, get married to her, redeem her, and we want to bless you. We pray and we bless you, and we wish that the Lord will open up Ruth's womb, that she may bear a child. If we think back, the children that were born to Leah and Rachel ended up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. What they are saying is, we bless you, we pray that Ruth will become a woman such as this, that her offspring will have significance in redeeming others. And then we're told in the conclusion that Ruth conceives, that the Lord opens her wombs. Because we're told in the beginning it's been 10 years she was married and she couldn't bear a child. 
We see redemption playing out through, through ordinary, old, archaic means, but we can see it. There isn't no supernatural, but it's, 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 it's going through the process of everyday life at the time. It's, it's going in between the gaps of time where we think God is silent. We see redemption and redeeming at work and at play. And what are we told at the end of chapter 4 as we near the end? We, we hear about a redeemer. And if you pay attention the way it is, it's not just referring to Boaz, even though he was referred to it throughout. It's actually referring to the baby who was named Obed. And this is significant because we're told that Obed now fathers Jesse, and he fathers King David. And we see... From the line of King David, if we look in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, that he didn't just appear out of nowhere through a virgin birth, but he appeared from a long line of Redeemers. That God in his sovereignty was making all things work for good. That even in the brokenness and the emptiness and the frailty of the portrait of Ruth and Naomi, that God in his sovereignty was bringing a redeemer, that through the line of David, the one and true and better and magnificent, exalted, excellent, amazing, holy, set-apart redeemer would come. I kind of gave you point three already there, didn't I? Point three. How does it point to Christ? I just said it. It points to Christ because through the lens and rhythm and tempo and drive of redeeming love, we see through this line, this line that was broken, this line that has a lot of footnotes, this line that has a lot of fear, through that line came the ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. So this idea of redeemer is all throughout the Old Testament. If it's built into the framework of the people's thinking. And so when we, when we look in Deuteronomy 9.26, it says, And I pray to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Isaiah 47, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and a rampart, a defense wall. And we see even Psalms picks up this understanding as Ruth says to Boaz, will you cover me with your wing? We see that that framework, that understanding, that redeeming type of, is ultimately seen in God and in Christ. That you and I, as broken people, are redeemed under his wing, to come under him, to take refuge, to, to have a shield, to have a, a rampart, a defense wall. And so when we get into the New Testament, we see that this covenant is completely sealed, signed, and packaged in Christ as he redeems all broken people. Galatians 4, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that, he might, that we might receive adoptions as son. Why did Jesus come? To redeem. Why did Jesus come? He came to redeem. He came to redeem the broken, the lost, the widowed, the orphan, the sojourner. He came to redeem you and I. We're reminded in Scripture elsewhere that even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. So let me conclude with this. In the beginning of the story, we saw that Naomi had given out hope. That it was decided in her mind that perhaps she just wanted her to, to, to make sure her daughters-in-law were taken care of and she was just going to silently go die. And she had written off her story. And, and maybe, maybe that makes sense because Naomi was older. But, but young people do it all the time. You and I do it all the time. With so much of life ahead of us, with, with so much more testimony of God's mighty works to be written, we write off our lives in moments of hopelessness, in moments of brokenness, in the, those gaps of time where we feel God is silent. We write it off and we say, my life is over, it's pointless, it's hopeless, why go on? And although, like we mentioned before, you are walking around and living life, you are dead inside. You're like a zombie because you've already written off the story. You've looked at your portrait and you say, this is done. This is over. There's no way for this to be redeemed. But I want to encourage you guys. Who do you think you're talking to? Who do you think you're before? When you find yourself in front of the loving and tender and almighty redeemer who can redeem all things. I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning. Do not write off your life story yet. Do not give up on the portrait that is being wonderfully and beautifully made. If your story right now, this morning, is a wreck, if your life is in ruins, and you say, you know what, I don't know how this is going to go, I give up, can I encourage you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer. You don't have to know all the details, the ins and outs. If that's what you want, then make that decision today. I'm going to trust him as my Redeemer. And then you can see us afterwards, and we'll work out some of the details over the years and life to come. But do you want a Redeemer? Do you see the need for your Redeemer? Brothers and sisters who've been in the faith for a long time, perhaps we forgot about this. Perhaps even though theologically we know that Jesus is our Redeemer, practically and tangibly we reach for so many other things to redeem us, to make our stories a little better, make our stories a little more manageable, a little more uh, okay and comfortable. But even though we've just written it off, stop going to other Redeemers. Stop gleaning from a field that's never going to fill you or satisfy you. Come to Jesus once more. Your story is not finished. Your, your, your portrait is not done. You know, I think about, I love drawing and, and art as a kid. And I remember, I always remember that moment that, that I was in class and, and we're drawing and I always loved drawing eyes and people and faces. And I'm not great, but I remember as a kid, I would draw and I would be so frustrated and upset how, how, how the faces and the people turned out. I couldn't, I couldn't quite, quite get the eyes and, and the lips 
and the facial features, right, to express what it wanted. And so I'd take it to my art teacher, and it was just the, just the littlest things that she would just, just change the angles of the eyes or even the, 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 the size of the, pu the, the pupils or, or even the arch of the eyebrows, and it would just lift up. And I was just like, how do you do that? It made me think about that when I, when I, when I thought about our Lord Jesus Christ and our portraits, our, our pictures. Some of us, we look at our, 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 our self-portrait and we think, I don't want it to look like this. I want it to look better, but I don't know how to. We'll bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus, and I think you'll be surprised to see how beautiful he can make it, how whole he can make it. And it's not going to be perfect. It doesn't mean it's just going to be just easy and just glitters everywhere. It's still going to be hard. The brokenness is still going to be there. The cracks are probably still going to show. But when you look back at it, you're going to say, mm, that shows character. Because now with some hope, you can look at it and see that scar is actually a reminder of how God healed me. You may not see it now, but all those who are woven into Jesus has their name written in the book of life. You have, metaphorically speaking, a portrait of grace hanging in the halls of his kingdom palace. Your portrait will tell of God's mighty works. You may not know all the details. You may not see all the strokes of the brush. But as you give your life, as you take that portrait to Christ, you will see on the canvas life, paint being lifted up. Trust in the Lord Jesus, and Scripture ensures us that the ending will be sweet, even though there will still be more brokenness that we see, that the ending will be beautiful, and that your ending would be dignified, that your ending song your outro will be one of redemption, one of joy, one of celebration. Can I ask us to, to pray and, and think about the word of God this morning?